This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. We've got a return guest on this session, Rear Admiral Mike Manazer, United States Navy, retired. Admiral Manazer, welcome back to Radio Stockdale. It's great to have you here. And we're going to talk about a couple of different things, including resilience and warrior toughness. And I want to talk about your book because it's coming out, right? Yes, sir, it is. Thanks, Michael. I'm glad to be back. I always love being on here with you. My book, uh, Learn How to Lead to Win, is on Amazon. So, so let me tell you a little bit of a story that I want you to flesh out as we go forward. So my dad was drafted at the end of World War II a long time ago. Okay, He was drafted into the cavalry. Now, they didn't have horses. He was a tanker at the time. He then transitioned out of tanks into aviation. He got a chance to fly everything in the Army inventory at the time. But here's, here, here's the reason I'm talking about the cavalry. He had this statement about getting back on the horse. So what I want to talk to you about is a lot of stories, but I'd like you to lead, if you don't mind, with a story that I believe is all about resilience. We call it warrior toughness here on the yard. And it's you in the cockpit with a with another pilot of an F-14. You want to take up that story? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and you know, any life well lived is full of setbacks and, and people recovering from setbacks. And we hear stories about that all the time. And I think the the midshipmen of the Naval Academy who have committed their life to service, they're going to face a lot of setbacks like I did. And it's how you come back from those that's most important. And you kind of think about it, but it's also in your character. And I and believe, you know, when you finish four years on the Severn there, you get worked pretty good. And, and you get, you know, your resilience through the four years in the yard to get all the way through to whatever your dream is in the U.S. Navy or Marine Corps or another service or whatever getting out of there is, you know, is already set. So, uh, I did have a chance to fly F-14s. Uh, that's what I wanted to do when I graduated from the Naval Academy and I got to do it. And circa August of 1987, I was a flight instructor with VF-124 gunfighters. And my job was to teach uh, new um, uh, students in the F-14 how to fly the airplane uh, in all regimes of the envelope that the airplane could be employed in. And I also was a landing signal officer, so I took them to the boat. But in this particular instance, I was taking a fellow pilot out uh, to, to uh, fly what was called a flip-flop hop. And what we did was before any pilot entered the air combat tactics phase, we took them up in the airplane and we showed them several uh, maneuvers that the airplane was capable of, and we showed them how to feel those maneuvers. The, the airplane uh, had uh, flown by hydraulics, big airplane, uh, and you you felt a lot of stuff when you flew it. So how the airplane shuddered and what it sounded like, and and what the what the you know what the airplane felt like, what it what it looked like when when you were at the edge of the envelope. And so uh, we would show how to do different kinds of loops. Uh, and so a, a standard 4G loop like anybody would do in a, uh, in a private airplane or you see at an air show is kind of the, you know, you're trying to, to transcribe the best circle you can. Well, in tactics, you're actually trying to gain as much vertical height as you can. So it looks more like an egg and the airplane slows down at the very top and then you bring it over the top and come down on the, on the adversary. And if you time it right, the adversary is out of energy and he can't go up with you. So you take advantage of the vertical or use the vertical in the, in the three-dimensional fight. 
as part of that training on the vertical, you, you, you know, sometimes um, you're looking over your shoulder and you're very, very rarely, if you're fighting somebody, you're not looking at your instruments. And so we would teach the student how to look over your shoulder, feel the airplane, get a quick check of the, of the uh, airspeed, typically about in the F-14A, which is what I was flying that time, uh, typically about 300 to 350 knots uh, indicated and you would, you would pull up into the vertical and go execute that egg loop. Well, every once in a while, if you pulled a little hard or you didn't have quite enough airspeed and you felt it was time to go vertical, you'd get the airplane going up and you didn't have enough energy to get it to complete the loop. In other words, it would stall in the vertical nose high. And so what we would train the pilots to do is to, when you got stalled nose high, you let the airplane kind of flip around and do what it does and and stuff. And then you just leave the controls alone. Don't touch it. It's called a post-stall gyration. And then once it gets nose down and the the aircraft is accelerating, you can see the airspeed building. The angle of attack is not pegged all the way to the top, indicating a stall. Then you pull back on the stick, you recover the airplane. And so... There were three vertical recoveries, we called them, in this hop. By the way, it's called a flip-flop hop because the first part of it, the instructor's in the front. That was my role that day. And the student pilot is in the back seat. Typically, they don't fly back there. Typically, that was a radar intercept officer. But they're just watching. And there's no controls in the back of a Tomcat. There's only one set of controls that's in the front. All models of the Tomcat only had one set of controls. Let me jump in for a second because in, in my airplane, we actually had controls in the back. And one of the things that... The guys in the back, the Gibbs, okay, <laughs> were always concerned about us when the pilot said, hey, we got more gas. Let's do something else. You remember what, you know what I'm talking about here? Oh, yeah. Yep. So, so I'll finish the vertical recovery explanation. And, and they, yeah, that fateful, that fateful, actually it was the question from, uh, from me to uh, Sam Richardson, who was in the backseat, call sign slammer, and he's riding in the backseat that day. And so we, there are three vertical recoveries. And so one of them is kind of, 70 degrees nose high. So you're kind of on your belly just a little bit, not quite straight all the way up. You let the airplane go and you, you decelerate all the way through to zero airspeed and the nose falls through and you recover the airplane. Pretty benign. And then the second one is on your back the same. So 110 degrees. So now you're kind of just a little bit upside down. Let the airplane go. It kind of falls nose down. Pretty benign. The third one and the one that caused all of the challenges whenever anybody did a flip-flop hop was you park dead nose high, 90 degrees nose up, and you, you work to get it pure vertical. And so the airplane would, would fall out of the vertical once it reached uh, zero airspeed, doesn't really know where to go yet. So it is falling straight down, and then it, it kind of flips off to one side or the other, and it's a pretty violent departure. Tomcat's a big airplane, so about 65 feet long and about, about 62 feet wingspan, and so the pilots out front are they're on quite a moment arm. And so all midshipmen understand physics and understand what it feels like on the end of a moment arm. And you're out front of that thing when it starts whipping around. And so we go out and do all three of those recoveries. I show Slammer all those things. And the idea was once I showed them all of those maneuvers, we're going to fly back to Miramar. We're going to land. We're going to hot pump the airplane. We're still in the cockpit. Fill it all up with gas. We're going to swap cockpits. And then I'm going to climb in the back and I'm going to, I'm going to help him while he does the maneuvers. And typically the backseat ride as an instructor in the flip hop hop is, is really rattling. I mean, it's nerve wrenching because you can't touch the controls. And so you're, you're telling the student what to do. And uh, in this case though, no, this was, this was my screw up this particular day. And so we did the vertical recovery. And what I had briefed slammer on was I was taught when I went through the, the uh, fleet replacement squadron, 
just a mere three years earlier on my way to VF 51 screaming Eagles is that you can actually on purpose go straight up in the Tomcat with not enough airspeed to go over the top in a full loop just to extend in the vertical. And right as you're passing about a hundred knots, you shove the stick forward and the airplane would do a little flip on its belly and you let it go. And as soon as it came out of the vertical there and the airspeed started to build, you get a little handful of stick and now there you go. And you didn't even have to do a, a loop. And so I briefed slammer and said, Hey, we're going to do this thing. And by the way, this vertical recovery, there is a tactical use for this. I used to use in the fleet in my first fleet squadron as a Lieutenant. I'd been a top gun, uh, and I, and I was able to, you know, maneuver my Tomcat at the edges of the envelope. And this was one of the things I had in my, in my, my bag of tricks. And so I brief slammer, there is an actual tactical use here. You don't just go up and stall and let it go, but the procedure is let it go. So anyway, we go up and do the first vertical recovery and I'm shoving on this. I can't make the airplane flip over like it used to do in VF-51. Turns out later on, it's a different block airplane. The center of gravity was slightly different. And instead of flipping over now, the newer F-14As would transition. They'd kind of slide the tail end a little bit and they just wouldn't go over aerodynamically. And I didn't, I didn't know that. So not something that's talked about. So anyway, I'm in the ver- I'm pushing on a thing. It won't do it. It falls off. It's violent. It's banging around. You know, it's flipping around. I have my my feet on the on the uh, the floorboards and my my hands are off the the controls uh, as as they're supposed to be. It throttles are all the way at military power, not an afterburner. All the way at military power because we're full power. Still goes to zero airspeed, going straight up. Falls out. Violent, flipping around on its back, rolls up and down. And I'm talking to Slammers, and here's where this gets really violent and disorienting. Just keep your hands off and let it, let it do its thing. And then when we start flying again, you're looking at increasing airspeed, the break in the angle of attack, obviously the motion stops and then you just pull back and keep going. So we are about 70 miles to the Southwest of San Clemente Island off the coast of Southern California. Beautiful day, blue, just gorgeous, which is why I loved flying fighters out of Miramar. Just gorgeous outside. So I'm, we have 6,600 pounds of gas left. We're going to go back and, and uh, turn over the airplane and swap cockpits. And I said to Slammer, fateful question, Slammer, we got 6,600 pounds of gas. Do you want to see anything different before we go back and you have to do it? And he goes, yeah, I want you to show me that vertical recovery. The one you said we flip over on the belly for, you know, the bag of tricks thing. Oh, okay. Lock your harness up. We go full power, 15,000 feet, which is where we started. Go right up into the vertical and, uh, and I am, I am now, I had this thing perfectly straight up. The, the, uh, the little, the attitude indicators, the digital controls we look at there, the display, sorry, digital display we look at is bullseyed in the pure vertical. In fact, it's, it's kind of rolling around a little bit straight up. The airplane is straight up. I can't, it's not a quarter degree out of the vertical. So just to, just to jump in here, my dad would say the little pieces of yarn are pointing straight down at the deck, right? There, there you go. And actually <laughs> in the Tomcat, there was a 69 cent piece of string that screwed to the top of the nose. I'm not kidding. It's the, called the yaw string. And it was a little nylon string. And when you arched your back a little bit and looked over the top of the, of the, the glare shield there on the nose, you could tell if the airplane was flying straight or not. In fact, when you went to zero airspeed and then dropped back down, the yaw string would flip around. And, and so besides the fact that it kind of looks like you're stopped, you'd watch the yaw string flip around and go, go backwards, right? And so now... The yaw string is pointed at the nose. There's a little bit of blue smoke in the cockpit. The oil would burn a little bit in the uh, in the uh, environmental control system uh, turbofan that that runs air through the cockpit, and you see little blue smoke in the cockpit. Totally soundless, just 
kind of just floating and then it drops back and we were sliding straight back. Well, about right, right as we start going back, right after I said yaw strings flipped around. I, and by the way, I'm standing on the controls trying to get this airplane flip over, but it won't do it. And I, I now have it purely straight up. I'm not letting it go anywhere because I have the controls now we're zero airspeed. So they're not effective, but I, I also am trying to get the airplane, you know, in the book, I call it bend it to my will. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a pretty good story in the book there. So I, I'm trying to bend this airplane to my will. It won't do it. And all of a sudden this big yellow fireball comes blowing by my left ear. The left engine stalled as, as Pratt and Whitney engines typically did in those days, even in normal flight regimes, it goes, boom, it goes right by my left ear, big yellow fireball. I mean, terrifying. And the thing, you know, just, whoa, you know, and so now the airplane is at full power on the, on the right side and a stalled engine on the left side that does work, even though you're at zero airspeed. So it starts coming off to the left with asymmetric thrust and falling on its back. How high? And coming out of the pure vertical. We topped out at 26,000 feet. Okay. So 15,000, 26,000. So now it's starting to fall off. And the procedure for an engine stall is to pull both throttles to idle, no matter where you are, or what's happening. It doesn't say, wait till you get airspeed or air over the, the sub, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't say any of that. It just says pull both throttles to idle. So engine stall, I pull both throttles to idle from military power, not afterburner. That, that engine transient with no airflow into the right intake stalls the right engine. Mm-hmm. And it goes, boom, goes by my right ear. And now both engines are stalled. The lights are going off and there's this tone, there's this tone in your ears that goes or the engine stall indicator. And they're both going off. So it's kind of a cacophony of, of doo-doo-doots, right? And then the, all the lights come on with the, the engine failure and the, and the airplane now is really violently coming off to the left and on our back. So now it starts just banging around. And so I, I take my hands off the controls. You know, we got a dual engine stall, which is very obvious to both of us. And of course, you've got to start the engines in order to fly the airplane. So we have to get airspeed over the, you know, over the wings and start to fly the airplane. But it's coming out of the vertical and it's really violent. My brain goes to the size of a pea. And all the training that comes back is basic training in my head. And the thing that left my head was keep your hands off the controls until this thing fully comes out because you are not in a flat spin because the flat spin isn't indicated by, and there was no question and answers. I was looking at the instruments and I was convincing myself that we were about to go on a flat spin. The angle attack was all the way up, totally white. It was, uh, it was fully stalled airplane. The airspeed was wandering around less than a hundred knots and we were turning what appeared to be left. And the last training I had was in order to prevent a flat spin, you take the controls and you pull the stick back and put it into your thigh in the direction of the turn, which was left. And you put in a whole bunch of opposite rudder. Well, your brain also goes and starts, you know, time compression starts happening. And seconds seem like minutes. And so I need to restart these two engines. Slammers reporting the altitudes. We're falling down pretty fast. And as soon as the nose comes out of the horizon, the, the altimeter spins down like a clock. I mean, zzzz, and then, wow, we're losing altitude fast. Then it would kind of come up into the vertical and on its back. And then it would slow down a little bit. We're coming down pretty hard. And, and very violently, heads, our heads are banging off the canopy and it's flipping around on the end of that moment arm and stuff. And so I put in controls and I pulled, I pulled the stick back, which obviously is not going to allow the airplane to break the angle of attack for those aerodynamicists out there. And I put it into my lap because the last training that I had reviewed 
in the in the squadron there for training was to do this. And so my brain went back to my last set of training. And, and for those of the folks that are in training, they know that your, your brain falls to the level of training that you're at uh, when things start to happen. So we I basically, the airplane never recovered. Uh, we got down to 10,000 feet, which is a mandatory ejection altitude, and, and Slammer was reading off uh, altitudes. Uh, and we had done 10,000 feet and mandatory eject altitude. The airplane's uh, still out of control. I can't get it in control. I can't figure out what to do different. Uh, when I let go of the controls, the airplane just just spun really fast. And, and that convinced me that we were actually in a flat spin and I hadn't gotten out of it yet. So I needed to try harder. So the controls went back in. And, and so me and the airplane never figured <laughs> figured each other out. That we, I didn't say anything at 10,000 feet. And when we hit 8,000 feet, it was like, oh my gosh, we're 2,000 feet below mandatory ejection altitude. Slammer says, you know, 8,000 feet, have you got it? And that's, no, I don't. I raise you to handle. So eject, eject, eject. 8,000 feet. By the way, you realize I asked, the first thing I asked was how high? Okay. The guy in the back is checking altitude. Okay. <laughs> so Admiral, you're a shit hot pilot. You're sitting in the front seat. You got some issues. You got your hands full. And all of a sudden, the guy in the back asks you whether or not you got it. What goes through your head at that point? Yeah, that's perfect. Because I remember distinctly my little lieutenant mind thinking about when he says, have you got it? I'm like, somebody's going to recover this airplane and we're going to fly home. And that's where my thought stops. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, even Chuck Yeager talks about it in his book. I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, and, and I've tried D and it doesn't work. And he ejected. And so... As I didn't say anything. As we went down to 8,000 feet, I uh, he said, he says 8,000 feet. And I realized we're 2,000 feet below the, the uh, mandatory eject altitude. And I said, I said, I do not have it. Eject, eject, eject. Erase him the handle. And if you buy my book and you go to that chapter and read in there, you'll, you'll read the whole story of what happened next. From what I understand, made a bit of midair um, and, and, and other things, right? Oh, it was a pretty funny ride down in the parachutes as we, uh, as I recall that story. So that's, yeah, nothing bad happened on the way down, but there were certainly some close calls and it, it's a great story to tell. Okay. So I, I, I will suggest to everyone here, commend to everyone here, get the book. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. And frankly, quite frankly, it's a lot of interesting stories about resilience, but let me, let me get you kind of a couple of weeks beyond that fateful day, you've been through some boards, you were successfully passed through those boards. And, and here's, you know, back to my old man's thing about jumping back on the horse. You're on the flight line, you're walking out to an aircraft because you're going to get a check ride, right? The boards, the boards for me to qualify me to go back flying took about five weeks and they just cleared me to fly. There is no, there is no real recall, you know, or a check flight with anybody. I just went out with a with, with another instructor, uh, backseater. And we, we took the airplane out and went flying again just to go fly. You're cleared, but, but tell me what that means inside of your head. Yeah, actually, you know, head was okay. Checklist gut, gut was churning. Uh, we're going to get back in the airplane and get back in there and walk out. Remember the last time I manned up an airplane, I, I shelled out of it. So this is five weeks later we're going to go and get in this airplane and go flying. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a little bit of shaken confidence, right? I'm ready to rock and roll. Got to get back on that horse, like you said, and, and go flying. And so our, our brief was to go out over land. Uh, we went out to the warning area to the east uh, near El Centro, California, 
and and perform some aerobatic maneuvers, just kind of shake it off a little bit and, and get uh, and get comfortable in the airplane again. So that was the brief and and every aspect of it. I was very, very, very careful. Uh, I was very process and procedure oriented, manned up, started the airplane, taxied out, took off, nothing, nothing hot. And it just took off normally, stayed on airspeed profile, climbed out, flew, flew, uh, flew to the east and went out over the desert. Uh, and we did one maneuver in the desert. And that maneuver was a vertical recovery. You know, I like the way you talk about the head and the gut. And quite frankly, you know, I've, I've read enough to realize, I don't know if there's neurons in the gut, so to speak, but the gut is another brain. I mean, there's so much going on down there. What, what would you tell midshipmen or, or anyone, any of our audience here about that that process? And, and I heard you say you flew by the book, okay? But is that what we necessarily pay for? fighter pilots to do. And what I'm talking about is, of course you do. Of course you do. But there's instinct involved with this also, right? You take risks. Yeah, I think, and this is a, that's a great question. So I, I, it is gut and, and I had to overcome the fear and really the discussion in, in the book chapter is overcoming the fear. And, you know, I almost died. I mean, it, it, mm -hmm. all of the, the way I describe in the book is like having a, a Russian roulette, you know, revolver, you know, click, click. This is when I die. This is when I die. And so there's, there's a, there's a fear of failure and a, and a fear, actual fear of, you know, potential death. Uh, although that's, it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die screaming. It's just this reality that starts to appear in your head and it makes your gut do things. When, when I say I, I was, was very, very uh, specific on the process and this stuff, you know, we have a whole envelope to fly. In. I was in the very center of the envelope. Fighter pilots, you know, we train to fly to the edges of the envelope. This particular flight, it was the center of the envelope. Lots of margin on the sides here. And and I had to overcome the fear. And so when you have a failure, you got to want to get back on the horse as we talk about. You also overcome the fear of failing again. And in my case, the fear that was stark in my mind was, I sure hope we don't eject this time. I sure hope that the engines don't stall this time. Now, I know what to do when they stall. It was... and and. And each of the failures discussed in my book, you learn something from the failure. And so what I would tell midshipmen is do not be afraid to fail. Now, now, don't go out to like eject out of an airplane to fail and figure out what not to do next time. But that that's the point is, is don't be afraid to fail because you're going to learn something from the failure. And there are several in the book that talk about how I came back from that and the resiliency that you gain when you do that, and the confidence that you can come back from failure. And so you're going to try. When you fly an airplane to the end of the envelope, and all of a sudden you get out there and you're pulling pretty hard, and it stalls, you're going to recover from the stall. If it flips over on its back because there's, there's a high-speed stall while you're fighting somebody, you're going to let go of the controls, and you're going to rep the airplane around, you're going to whip back in, especially if that guy is not in training and he's trying to shoot you down. And so this overcoming failure thing is... It is a. It can be gut wrenching when you go try, and then the confidence that you gain when you when you go through and you try it again and you succeed is gigantic. It has a magnifying effect. I did one maneuver, that vertical airspeed maneuver, and it was you know to the back seater, a guy named Greg. Lock your harness up. We go fifteen thousand feet over the desert, straight up, and and this time as we passed hundred knots, as I'm supposed to. I just let go of the controls, put my feet on the deck and let the airplane fall off just like I'm supposed to do. And it fell off 
relatively nicely. It wasn't too violent, although here it comes. And when it fell off and started coming off, all I thought about was engines, please keep running. Please keep running. I don't want the thing to stall again. Airplane, don't be that violent. Just I just sat there and I clasped my hands in my lap and I sat and I let the airplane go just like we're on a roller coaster. Thankfully, it came out right. We started to recover the airspeed uh, and, and, and covered out and we flew back to Miramar. I had lots of gas and I did not want to do anything else. <laughs> Admiral, the name of the book one more time. Learn how to lead to win. And this is not all about flying. This is about, about taking those risks, trusting yourself, trusting process, but also knowing where those edges of the envelope are. So all 33 chapters are personal stories from my career. They're, they're all stories that I personally experienced. And it's from entering the Naval Academy all the way to, you know, leaving the Pentagon when I retired in 2017. But each of those stories, I learned something. And what we show the reader is what I learned from a leadership perspective. And what we hope to do is you don't have to be a Naval Academy graduate, tactical fighter pilot, carrier driver to get the lesson out of that. And, and um, that's where you want to learn from the leadership lesson in each one of those uh, chapters. But each of the stories, they're pretty compelling. And I, I love telling them, but I also learned something from each of the experiences that I went through. And there are a bunch of this, the whole theme of this podcast is resilience. There's a whole bunch of uh, resilience and and recovery and failure and recovery from failure and how you think about that. Admiral, listen, this is fantastic. Your story was great. The way you told it was great. And there's a lot more stories in the book. Thanks for joining us on Radio Stockdale. Thanks, Michael. It's wonderful to be here as usual and hope to be invited back soon. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.